um, from time to time, I am sent pictures, and some of them I just have to share. They're really good. I like it anyway. I don't know how well this is going to show up here. Maybe if you turn these lights off. Picture says a lot. This, this doesn't says more because it has they, they're carrying signs. This is a guy. I think they're out in front of a a gun shop. And this guy is there. You go. His his sign says gun sellers are accomplices of crimes. This guy's sign says spoons made me fat. <laughs> Look at him looking over. He didn't even have to say anything. This guy looks kind of surprised over here. That's <laughs> all. Thank you. Ran home, made that sign. He probably did. He looks like a good old boy. Okay. All right. Uh, the 26th of this month, which is about... Yeah, it's uh, today's the 12th. We have one Thursday next week, and then the next 30 Thursday will be when Moses Amwabiko is here. And I hope everybody is here, and you can bring people that you know. He's an internationally known speaker, and I, I know him personally. Uh, we have some of his uh, books and booklets in our library, so I hope that you'll mark that on your calendar. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. You know what, our, what that is. A few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the time and, and the freedom and the opportunity to study it this evening. We recognize that it's so easy to get off course, and then as you continue on that course, you really uh, just get lost in a maze. So we pray that you will help us to stay on the straight and narrow with regards to your word and with regards to keeping our priorities straight. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> before we begin, I, I have a few pictures that I got off of the internet to illustrate a point. We're going into some of the depths of details with regards to soteriology. And when we're going into this uh, Reformed theology, some of you are learning things about this that you never even knew about uh, what you have to uh, believe if you subscribe to Reformed theology or some would say uh, Calvinism. There's a lot of people who have done it, but I don't think they've really thought it through. And you might think, well, you know, why do we have to go so deep? And why do we have to get into such minutia? And, and why we've gone over some of this before. Why do we have to do it again? Well, there's a principle, and you probably have heard it before, that the war is won in the trenches. Now, I have a, a football background. And so some of the things and illustrations that I use has, have to do with football. And it, it was the same thing in football. 
when you when most people watch uh, football, especially if you're not really into football or you don't really know the rules and you don't know that much what that's going on, usually you see the the backfield and the ends and they're out separate from all this bunch of guys in the middle. But it's those guys in the middle that you don't usually know their names. Uh, that's they are in the trenches. And that's where the battle is won. I don't care how good the quarterback may be. Everybody knows his name. But it doesn't matter how good he is, he cannot throw a pass unless he has time to do so. And if those guys on the front line, uh, I say the front line, they're on the line, but they're actually on the front line, those guys that are the unknowns that are doing their job because they've been trained and the details... Uh, he can't throw a pass because the defense will be on him and he'll be tackled. He can't do anything. Whatever line is doing their job the best will overpower the other line, and that's the team that's going to win. Now, you don't ever hear this. All you hear is about the stats on the, how many uh, passes the quarterback <coughs> passed and how many uh, yards the backfield rushed and all this. But that's, that's all really fluff. The real... The real victory is in the details that the line is carrying out. Now, I'm going to show you uh, something to illustrate this. Let's see here. I'll get it on the next deal. How you like to run into that guy? He is in a three-point stance. Now, you just don't. You, you've seen them when the line goes down and they get in a stance. This is the three-point stance. It's called three points because he has one, two, three, three points on the ground. And he is showing a, a proper three-point stance. You'll notice that his, his feet are about shoulder width. He's got some wide shoulders. <laughs> and he's got his hand uh, on the ground about the proper place. He's balanced. And here's a a side view of it. If your rear end is too high, you're going to be off balance. And if it's too low, you're going to be off balance. It's got to be right straight across here. See, like it is here? There's got to be the proper amount of weight put on this, on this arm here, on this, on this point here. I think the next one I have is a four-point stance. I can illustrate maybe better with this one. This is a four-point stance because he's got one, two, three, four points on the ground. This is the stance that we used when I played at Texas A&M. Now, you can tell that he is, this is a, a cocked position. When you're in that position, you are ready to fire off. When these arms, when these, or these hands draw up real quick, what's going to happen? This guy is going to shoot forward. And, uh, and, and these, look at the size of these legs. You have the force already on the hands. The weight is there. When the count is made and he snaps the ball, he jerks up those hands, he fires forward. So this is the proper stance. Now, this is pathetic. This guy hasn't been trained. By the way, this, isn't it. this is a lid of a igloo over here. That's not part of his jersey. Anyway, look where his feet are. First of all, they're together. They're up under his rear end. He's not, he doesn't have any extension here. He doesn't have... Uh, you could go up there and just go, boop, just push him like that on the helmet, and he'd go over backwards. This is someone who hasn't been trained. 
But let's go back to this for a moment. You're drilled into this over and over and over and over again. So in the middle of a game, you don't ever have to think, am I in the right stance? It's been drilled into you. When you Usually you're in a huddle, you break the huddle, and you go out to the line, and you get in a stance. Sometimes the guys just stand there. Sometimes they'll put their hands on their knees like that. That's the ready position. And already your feet are shoulder-width apart. You don't have to check it because you've done it a thousand times. This is a detail. And then when the quarterback says set, that's when you go down and you get into this four-point stance. Now, when you get into that four-point stance, there's a lot to remember. And it has to be inculcated in you to the point where you are not even have to think about it. First of all, when he says set, and you get down in your four-point stance, you freeze. You don't move. You don't even flinch. Because if you're in that four-point stance, and you just go like this, they'll throw the flag and it's a penalty. That's a, a five-yard penalty. Or even if you're in, in your stance and you just turn your head just a little bit, boom. So you cannot move. You cannot freeze. And a good coach will also train you. He will say, okay, don't look over towards you're going to block. Because the defense, especially the linebackers, are looking at you. They're looking at your eyes. They're, they're studying everything about you. Because you can give away clues as to where the ball is going, what kind of play it's going to be. Because if you uh, look at where you're going to block, obviously they're going to think, well, obviously the ball must be coming in through this area here. But sometimes it's a pass and it's not a block. So when you're in this four-point stance and you haven't been trained properly, what you'll do is kind of lower your rear end a little bit and take, to take a little bit of weight off your front hands because you're not going to go forward. First thing you're going to do is come up like this to block. And so the linemen, the linebackers, are looking at your stance to see if you, how much weight do you have on your hands and have you lowered your rear end any. Now, there's also a time... When uh, if you're a guard, usually it's the guard, tackles do it sometimes, the whole rest of the line fires out, except you don't. It's called a trap. And instead of going forward, you just sit there until they go forward, and then you turn down the line, and there'll be a lineman coming through the other hole where somebody didn't block him. And if he's not paying attention, a freight train hits him, and he never sees it. But you can give that away also. Because if you lean at all, if you, go, if you lean this way, do you see all the things that I'm saying? Plus, when you come out of, this, out of the huddle, you have to know the play. For instance, a, a typical play, at least one that they played quite often at A&M, they would say, you'd be in the huddle and they say, the quarterback called the huddle. And everybody had their right place to stand. And you'd say, okay, uh, T-35 on two. T-35, right, on two. Break, and you go to the line. That's, that's how fast it goes, and you've got to know exactly what he's talking about. T-35 is a T formation, and the number three back is going through the number five slot on the snap of two. Now, when, you're, when you've got grit in your mouth and sweat coming down your eyes, you're tired and you're hurting, that's no excuse. You have to concentrate because usually he only calls it once. And then even after he does that, when you get to the line, all these things that we're talking about that he had, that lineman has to be concentrating on, he has to do it nearly without thinking because he's gone over it and over it and over it. These are details. And when you're in the midst of it, you get so sick of it. 
You get sick of the coach drilling into you, don't do this, do this, and this is, don't look at your man. And then it's the proper, there's certain kind of blocks. If you're going to hit a linebacker, it's going to be a, a side body block. If it's going to be a, a lineman, sometimes they stunt. Sometimes when you're uh, on the offense and the guy right in front of you, you think that's who you're going to block? Well, if they're stunning, stunning means they don't go straight. They go over here and someone else is coming there. So if you think, oh, I'm going to hit this guy. Well, the ball is snapped and you go towards him. He's not even there. He went this direction. The guy that was over here, that's the guy you've got to block. There's so much going on, and that is, that is such a good illustration of what's going on in life. You have, to, you have to know the details. And as we're going through these details of soteriology, uh, Reformed theology, what they think, how to be able to stand firm for the truth when you're talking to a person, it's going to pay off in the end because it's one in the trenches and that's what we're doing. We're learning how to fight in the trenches. So I thought I would give you that before we get into this just in case anybody thinks, well, um, I might not ever use this. Uh, I don't know why we have to be so detailed. That's why. Because it pays off. As I'm teaching and you're inculcating this doctrine, it's filed away in those memory banks. And you might not even think of it for uh, weeks or months or maybe even years, but when that time comes and that person is before you, the Holy Spirit will be able to draw that out from you because you paid attention and you wanted to understand it and you did understand it and now you can, re, re, uh, you can, you can give it to someone that will help them out. Okay. So far, we know quite a bit about football, but I don't, still don't know about Reformed theology. So, <coughs> We nearly got through with uh, the unconditional election. Remember? Uh, total depravity, the main thing about total depravity is pe the, the, the Reformed theologists would say that that means you're totally unable. You cannot even accept the free gift of eternal life, which means then that you're election that God has elected the uh, certain ones is uh, unconditional. What they mean by that, see, let, me, uh, let me explain this again. Unconditional election is a little confusing to some because we can say, yes, uh, God's salvation is unconditional. And if we say it, what do we mean? We mean it's not conditioned upon works. It's not conditioned upon anything that we do. However, if a Reformed theologist was saying, uh, using it, he doesn't mean that it doesn't depend on works. What he means is that it doesn't depend on God's foreknowledge knowing that there was going to be a point in time that you believe the gospel. So it's unconditioned by anything that you will do or respond. What is it conditioned on? Well, it's conditioned. I would say, uh, they would not agree with this and they wouldn't like it, but I would say that it would... According to their theology, it would depend on the arbitrary decision of God. I say arbitrary because they can't even tell you why God makes the, ch the choice of some to save and not save others uh, when he could. We only have a, 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 about a half a page left. I don't know if you can see this. Can, it looks like it. Can you see that from there? I have stars, highlights, par uh, arrows, and all kind of things on this. Now, we ended last time with the question, if God does not will the existence 
of the reprobate, a reprobate is an unbeliever. If he does not will uh, the existence of the reprobate or the elect, that means uh, to eternal damnation, uh, why does he permit it? And then he asks the question again down here. Uh, God could convert to good the will of the wicked because he is omnipotent. In other words, he could give them the grace and the ability to accept the gospel that he gives to the ones he chooses to. He could do that to those who are not going to receive that. It is evident that he could. Why then does he not? He could, in other words, he could save, save the ones that, remember, they cannot accept the gospel. They, they are dependent upon him giving them the faith to believe. He could give it to them, but he doesn't. And yet he wills it, but he, but he doesn't do it. And why? And remember, this is how we ended. He would, he, he, he would not... Um, because, because he would not. That, and then he says, why would he not remain with himself? In other words, it's, it, they say it's just a mystery. Now, he's going to make a point here. Um, this is one short paragraph. Listen to this. But there are some who say it is hard for God to choose some and leave others. I guess you might be one of those people, right? Is that a true statement, though? Is, is, not is it hard, but is it true that God chooses some and not others? Is that a true statement? No, no, well, think about it. Think about it. Everyone are, are, are not saved, are they? Everyone is not saved. Um, so... There are those, right, that's the key. He does choose. See, that's why you use the word elect. Certain people are elected to salvation. Certain people are chosen for salvation. However, it's not based on some arbitrary decision on God. It's based on whether they use their volition to accept the gospel or not. So to that extent, what he's saying there is true. Uh, when he says, is it hard for God, I, that's kind of a, I, I don't know, I don't think I would word it that way. But he said, but there are some who say it is hard for God to choose some and leave others. Now I, I will ask you a question. Is there any one of you who wishes to be holy, who wishes to be regenerate, to leave off sin and walk in holiness? And what would you say if that was asked to you? I would assume everybody here would say, yes, yes, that's what I would desire. He said, uh, yes, there is. Uh, some say that they would, and that they w and I do. Then this is what he says. Then God has elected you. If you desire to be holy and leave off sin and walk in holiness, then that means that God has elected you. He said, But another person may say, no, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lust and my vices. And I guess there are some who would say that, but I, think, I don't think most people would say that, do you? I mean, there are people who say, I'm, 
I'm going to do what I want to do and I don't want to be holy. There's probably a multitude that says, I don't want to be a Christian because in their mind they think Christians are these stuffed shirts, legalistic, self-righteous prudes that go through life not having any fun. And they say, I don't, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to be one. But he's saying, if you don't want to give up your lust and your vices, then he says, why should you grumble then that God has not elected you? For if you were elected, you would not like it uh, according to your own confession. Now, this was Charles Spurgeon that said this. This is a quote from Sp uh, Charles H. Spurgeon in Election. Um, the, I guess it was the book Election. Or no, it was, a, it was a sermon from New Park Pulpit, Volume 1, page 316. Now, let me tell you what, they, what he's saying here. He's saying if you desire to be saved and you desire to be holy, you desire to not sin and this type of thing, that's how you can have assurance that you're elect. He's saying that's, in other words, assurance comes from a desire to be good and want to be saved. That's how you, does the Bible say that? No, but he's saying that's how you can know is if you have a desire. Aren't there a lot of people out there, probably by the millions and maybe even billions who desire to be good and to be saved, wouldn't you say that probably most people would have that that uh, sentiment, wouldn't you? And I was thinking about Muslims, uh, Buddhists, I mean, all across the board. But according to his formula, that's all it takes to know that you are elect. That's what your assurance would be based on. Well, y'all can see through that one, right? And then when he says, uh, if you don't want to be saved, you don't want to be holy, then you shouldn't grumble uh, because God didn't elect you. For if you were elect, uh, you, would not, you wouldn't like it anyway. Well, that doesn't make sense because he just said that if you're elect, you desire holiness. So if you don't want to be elect, he says you wouldn't like it because you wouldn't desire holiness. Well, if you didn't desire holiness, according to what he just said, you wouldn't be elect anyway. Are y'all getting that? Am I saying it too fast? This is circular reasoning, really. He said, just as uh, the elect desires holiness, uh, so there is no elect person who couldn't desire holiness anyway. So it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. No, we didn't say anything. Then he goes, this is, this is also, listen to this. I, see, what I, when I'm doing this, what I'm wanting you to do is listen with a critical ear. Have all your doctrinal cards on the table. Not so that you can win an argument, but that you can poke holes in these senseless, false, uh, heretical arguments that are made. He said, beloved, beloved reader, read this. And he says, this is the point. In italics, because he's so emphasizing it, God never refuses mercy to those who sincerely desire it. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, sincerely to a degree, but the main thing here is if you're not elect, you're not going to desire it anyway. Remember, you're totally depraved. You can't desire anything good. You can't please God. So my question is, how could a totally depraved person in their definition, who is totally unable, who cannot understand spiritual things, he, how could he 
sincerely uh, desire mercy from God. He doesn't even think he needs it. So that doesn't, that doesn't even make sense. A totally depraved person never desires mercy. Uh, most of them would be either atheists or agnostic. They don't care about any of that. It's, it's like what he's actually making a remark as if they had free will, which they don't think he does anyway. You get the point? And then he says this. Um, it is certain that... You, listen, this is very important. I've got a star with starburst coming off. That's, that means wake up. It is certain that you do not know if the Father gave you to Christ in eternity or not. And I know. I said, wow. If, if that's true. In fact, that's their weakest link. They can't know. But then he says this. That was a comma, not a period at the end of that. So he goes on to say, But you can know that he did if you come to Jesus Christ. Let me give you the whole thing. You know, my whole thing, I'm telling you all the time, I say, if you're talking to a Calvinist, someone that is into uh, Reformed theology, if you ask them, how do you know that you're saved? They're in a pickle. They cannot say because I believed in Jesus Christ. Because they can't believe they were totally depraved. And so the only thing they can do is, for the most part, is say because of their works. They can say, but because I desire to do good things or I have a, a, a good life or whatever. Uh, assurance built on something that the Bible never uses. But here's the thing. Here, let me read to you one more time. It is certain that you do not know if the Father gave you to Christ in eternity or not, but you can know that he did if you come to Jesus Christ. Well, here's my question. How does one know if he comes to Jesus Christ? And what does coming to Jesus Christ mean anyway? Huh? Have you come to Jesus Christ? Well, you don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? I mean, what does that mean? I never see in the Bible it say, Come to Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Because, see, they don't use the word believe. Believe is nowhere in here. Because you can't believe. You have no volition. God has to give you the faith to believe if he chooses to elect you. And so the way they always do it, of course, is by works. If you ask a Calvinist, how do you, don't ask them if they're saved. Just ask them, if, how do you know that you're elect? Now, let me ask you a question. How do you know that you are saved? Every one of you should just, it should just pop right into your head. Our assurance is built on the truthfulness of God's Word. And God's Word says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, we all know that we have believed in Jesus Christ. We trust that the Bible is true. So we can say with total confidence, yes, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven based on what? Based on what God said. But they can't do that. So it's an issue to them of whether I'm elect or whether I'm not elect. You ask them, how do you know if you're elect? Is this the best that you can come up with by, because I came to Christ? How do you know that it was a true coming to Christ? You profess Christ, how do you know it's not a false profession? There's millions of people out there, maybe even billions, that profess Christ and they're not saved. 
They want to do good. Even the Calvinists would say they're not elect. Well, we're going to leave that one for a while. Are y'all ready to jump into the, 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 the middle of the lines then? Because that's where we're going next. The L, it's in the middle. And it is the worst of the lot as far as I'm concerned. It's called limited atonement. Limited atonement. I, I would go to um, what love is this on with regards to unconditional election, but I think I... I think I covered most of these. Well, no, I think I better go through some of them anyway. Uh, have I gone to any of these on unlimited atonement, rebutting the things in there? I don't think I have, have I? I haven't? Okay. Uh, I'm just going to go through these quickly. I, I rebutted a, a little of them, a few of them, but uh, he says the term unconditional election was chosen because it conveys the meaning of salvation is of the Lord and not by man. What that means is man has nothing to do with it, not even believing because he can't believe because he's totally depraved, he's unable to do it. And so uh, it's unconditional. It's not conditioned upon man accepting the gospel. There is a confusion, however, between salvation, which could only be effected through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, and our acceptance thereof which the Bible clearly states is a condition. Here's a verse for you. This is showing that they're saying it's unconditional election. Here's a verse for you that shows that it is conditional election and it's conditioned upon uh, receiving the gospel. It says, this is John 1:12. As many as received him became the sons of God. See, that was a, a condition. R.C. Sproul writes, the term election refers specifically to one aspect of divine presentation, God's choosing of certain individuals to be saved. This choosing can only be from God's side. See, because man, you get the point, you don't, they don't think you have volition because you can't make a decision. By making election conditional upon something that man does, even if it was what he does is simply to repent and believe the gospel, then they say that God's grace would be seriously compromised. And do you know why? You can, you, can, you can connect these dots. They said if man can do anything, even if he just believes the gospel, then God's grace would be compromised. And why is that? Because they think that believing that faith is meritorious. And if man can do anything to gain his salvation, then God's grace is compromised. You see? That's what Spurgeon is saying. Excuse me, not Spurgeon. Sproul. R.C. Sproul. And that, that's the next thing. It goes on. He says, they, they, they say this because they think that faith is a work. Yet if anything is clear in Scripture, it is undisputable fact that faith and work that faith is not work, but it's very antithesis. How can faith be a work when we have, and jot these scriptures down, you know this one for sure, by grace are you saved through faith and not of works. How can faith be a work when it says that you're saved by faith and it's not by works? How can faith be works? 
Then he says, uh, But to him that worketh not, but believeth. This is Romans 4, 5. Remember this one? So it says, He, he that worketh not, but believeth. If believing is working, why does it say to him that worketh not, but believeth? Nothing could be clearer than the fact that by believing, one is doing no work. In fact, faith and work are contrasted in the Bible. How can something that is uh, two things that are being contrasted be the same thing? According to the T and Tulip, man is unable to respond to God in any way except rebellion. He is free to pursue. Did you hear that? Man is free. He is free to pursue sin and to. Let me, excuse me. Let me start over with the T. According to the T and Tulip, man is unable to respond to God in any way except rebellion. In other words, he cannot respond to God's offer of salvation receives the gracious offer he can only he can only respond in rebellion he is free to produce sin and to reject the gospel because he, but because he is totally depraved he is incapable by the calvinist definition of that term he cannot believe the gospel or have any degree of faith in god he cannot respond to god only in unbelief and disobedience Calvinism's unconditional election will not even allow faith unto salvation. God simply decides to save some, sovereignly, sovereignly regenerates them, and damns the rest. Redefining certain words and phrases such as world, whosoever, any, all men, and even sinners to mean only the elect. For example, Paul's statement that Christ came into the world to save sinners. What would, wouldn't you think that that would cover all sinners? But uh, that's what it would seem like on its face. Uh, but the understanding, of course, would refute uh, Calvinism. Therefore, the world of sinners is redefined to mean the elect among sinners. That, in other words, they can't say that Christ came into the world to save sinners. They have to add these words to it. Christ came into the world to, to save the elect among, which isn't in the Bible, sinners. They have to add words. The men of Sodom were wicked and sinners. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Definitely, there's a distinction Throughout the New Testament, the same Greek word is used for sinners. Thus, there is no license whatsoever to give it a different meaning. In, one ca uh, in, in this one case, which could possibly uh, apply anywhere. Have you all ever heard of the Westminster Confession? Heard of that? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith states, quote, and this is a quote, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His own glory... Some men and angels are predestinated unto eternal, everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. And that is a blatant lie. God never foreordained or predestined any way, anyone to everlasting death. You can't find it in the Bible. It's not there. The elect, listen to this, the elect 
always, 100% of the time in the Bible, refers to believers. The Bible never says that he elect, chose, predestined anyone to the lake of fire. And yet that's in the Westminster Confession. Do I need to read it again or did you catch it? The Westminster Confession? Well, it's one from one of the, well, it was one of the councils. Michael, you 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 remember what when that was? Yeah, in the 16th century. By the way, let me tell you, you just said something about Armenianism. Uh, a lot of people think there's only two camps, that there are Calvinists and there are Armenians. And Calvinists, we are not Calvinists. You know that. But we are not Armenian either. It came from a man named James Arminius, and he started a, 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 a following. And our, our Armenians believe that you can lose your salvation. Yeah, that's what I say, James. Yes, yeah, Jacob, I mean. Um, we don't believe that you can lose your salvation. We don't believe that God elected some to damnation and that man has no free will. We don't. If anybody wants to know what you are, you just tell them, I'm a biblicist or a believer. They have problems with words like whosoever. They must be change to the elect for Calvinism to be sustained. In other words, John 3.16, For God so loved the world of the elect. Can't be world because I think it's everybody. So God so loved the world of the elect that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever of the elect believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, if you think that I'm stretching this and making it, I'm not because it cannot be any other way. It can't be all without exception because they deny that. And yet the words, whosoever, and many times, well, what does he have here? He has um, whosoever, and many times all means all without exception. Whosoever, always. If you, if you take the word and say whosoever, and you try to reduce it to a limited mo- number, then the English language doesn't mean anything. Because whosoever means what? Anyone. Not limited in any way. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. What is that? Well, that's the world of the elect. And we, and we have, by the way, that was John 3.17. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world of the elect. And you, understand, you understand, of the elect is there. That was John 4.14. Uh, it, it gets to be bordering on the ridiculous then he makes the point about partiality. He says, uh, God is entirely without partiality according to John, James 3, 6, 17. Uh, he is no respecter of persons, Acts 10, 34. Well, wouldn't he have to be partial or a respecter of persons if he chose, let's say he chose this side of the aisle here uh, to give the faith to believe the gospel and you're going to spend eternity in heaven 
and the rest of you are all going to hell. I would say he would be showing partiality to these, wouldn't you? Huh? That he was uh, being a respecter of person. Biblically, there is no question that God has a right to save whom he will, and no one can complain, but there are repeatedly, we are repeatedly told that God is love and he is merciful to all, exactly what we would expect of him. We surely would not expect the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, which he's called in 2 Corinthians 1.3, to, without mercy from, uh, to withhold mercy from any who desperately needed it, much less uh, take it, uh, who would uh, take pleasure, in, he would take pleasure in doing so. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn, that the wicked turn from his way and live. See, this is God's will. He has no, he has no pleasure in that. How about listen to this? Second Peter chapter two verse. Excuse me. Second Peter three verse nine. I want you to write that one down. Is God omnipotent? Yes. Can He carry out His will? Yes. Listen to Second Peter three nine. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now, isn't it, it's not hard, that's not hard to understand, is it? Who, unless they had been coached by a Calvinist, would read that verse this way? God is not willing that any of the elect should perish, but all of the elect should come to repentance. That's the way they read it. It's unreasonable to ask why God, who is love, lacks the love and compassion to save all whom he could save and instead predestinate billions to eternal torment. Calvin repeatedly hides his lack of an answer uh, behind the word mystery. It's always a mystery. How could God be the God of love, the God of compassion, the God of mercy? have the ability to give his mercy and faith to everyone. He could save everyone he wanted to, but just choose a few. Well, no one knows. By the way, this is interesting also. The only Greek word translated mystery is mysterion, and it is never used as Calvin used it to denote a secret not to be revealed. Whenever you see the word mysterion in the Greek, meaning mystery in English, it means something that hasn't been revealed in the past but is going to be revealed now. It never means like it's, ooh, it's mysterious, that type of thing, and yet that's the way that Calvin uses it all the time. He says, um, well, I'm not going to go more on that mystery. I think you all got that one. All right. Um, Are y'all ready for the limited atonement now? Oh yeah, it's a paradox. You just—it's uh, inscrutable. <laughs> well, they—they they have their spin meisters. Well. No, I'm not ready. I'm sorry. I have one, a few more quotes on this uh, 
unconditional uh, election. Um, nowhere in the Bible does the uh, nowhere does the Bible declare that God doesn't love and desire salvation of all. Nowhere in the Scripture is there any indication that God's love and salvation are limited to a select few. And that, that's what they claim. Not once, and we're talking about the word whosoever. Remember we mentioned that a moment ago? Not once in its 183 appearances in the Bible is there any reason to imagine that the word whosoever means anything except whosoever. But in those places where salvation is offered to whosoever will believe and receive Christ, the Calvinists insist that the exact same Hebrew or Greek word changes its meaning to the elect. Of course, there's nothing to back that up. If salvation is not genuinely offered to all, why did Christ command his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Did you get that? If it's not offered to all, why could they go in there and offer it to every creature? And you have this, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life. John 5, 24. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's uh, John seven, thirty-seven. I am the door. By me, if any man enter, he shall be saved. Any man, any man, any man. And the Calvinist reads that, any elect, any elect, any elect. Would it not be misrepresentation of the worst sort to offer salvation to whosoever will? And then, in fact, and then, in fact, it was only intended for a select few. Come, to me, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to who? All of me. Let me deal with this for just a second. Oh, golly, I can't believe the time is already. Whew, spent too much time on the football. Anyhow, uh, they make a big deal about the difference between uh, all without exception and all without distinction. See, we believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died for all men without exception. Okay? Now, all doesn't always mean all without exception. There is times when it can mean all without distinction, and that's what they say. For the Calvinist, any time that the word all, God would have all men to be saved, they, would, they say that means all without distinction. It means that God would have all types of men saved. Uh, Germans and French and, and, and English and all races, male, female. So when it says God would have all men to be saved, he's talking about all types of men. Now let me ask you, when you're reading through the Bible and you're, you're an unbeliever and it says all, God would have all men to save, how many people of you would think he's talking about all types? I mean, you'd have to nearly be schooled already. Uh, Dave Hunt gave a good illustration of this one time. Uh, he said, if you read an article, in the, I mean, you, you, there was an advertisement in the paper. Let's say H-E-B. 
was, had a sale going on. And they said, next Wednesday, all products in the store are going to be half price. Next Wednesday. How many people would show up? Well, you couldn't get in. But what if you went in there and you got a big basket, big cart full of food and groceries and things, and you went to check out and you were just so happy that you got in there. And they started ringing it up on the thing. And uh, they were charging some things full price. You said, oh, 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 wait a minute. There was an ad. I have it right here. It says that this Wednesday, H-E-B is going to have a, a sale on all products, half price. And, and, and the, the gal behind the register was saying, oh, oh, you don't understand. That means all types of products, don't you see? You wouldn't be a happy camper, would you? And yet, uh, that's a good illustration between all without exception and all without distinction. Y if you would read this in a normal reading. Now here's, I'm going to end on this because we, we're, we're just about out of time. I don't know if you can see this. That's a dot. See the starburst? Starbursts are good. Dave Hunt came up and with this illustration of, of and more than anything, I'm telling you all then, giving you quotes, giving you scriptures, this will stick with you. Listen to it. He's saying this is uh, essentially a description of what Calvinism is claiming. If I should hold a rope 30 feet above a man at the bottom of a well and plead with him earnestly to take hold of it so that I could pull him out, wouldn't he think that I was mocking him? And if in addition I berate him for not grabbing the rope, would he not wish he could grab me by the throat? And how could I maintain to any reasonable persons that I was really wanting to bring the man up out of the well, but he was the one who wasn't willing. So how can God really want to save those to whom he doesn't extend the irresistible grace, that being the only, that being the only means whereby they can believe the gospel? You're standing on the ground and there's a well, and a man fell into the well, and he's maybe drowning or he can't get out, and the, the, the well is 50 foot deep and you have a 70 foot rope and you let the rope down and you dangle it 10 feet ahead, above his head and say, grab the rope, please, grab the rope. And he can't do it. And then I blame him for not grabbing hold of the rope. And he's going to condemn, be condemned for it. That's, that's an illustration of how horrible this is. You see, this, this isn't just quibbling over little uh, details. This whole issue is how one sees God. I, in fact, I started, I, I, I didn't finish it, but years ago I started writing a book about Calvinism. And you know what the title was? Uh, after Dave's book come out, I, came out, it was so good I just put mine to the side. I didn't finish it anyway. But uh, this was the title. This will illustrate what I'm talking about. It was going to be 
magnificent master or malignant monster. That was going to be the title of the book. Because I think that's the contrast. Either we have a loving, gracious, compassionate, all-wise God, the kind of God that would love us so much that He would send His own Son to die the horrible death for our sin. Either we have that kind of God, or we have a God that has created robots, programmed some to be able to receive salvation and others He's withheld it from. And he's done this, according to them, because it brings him pleasure. So we're not talking, talking about little um, semantic differences. We're talking about how we view our God. And what I'm trying to do is prepare you to stand toe-to-toe with these people and not argue, not debate, but from the things that you've been learning, the things that they have embraced, to help them out of the darkness to ask them questions that they have no answer for. When you ask a, a Calvinist, how can you know if you're elect or not? There's no answer. If it comes up with something silly like, well, I know because I came to Christ. Well, how do you know you came to Christ? How do you know it took? How do you know that your faith came from Christ, from God to begin with? How do you know you didn't come, come up with it on your own? How do you know that you're not going to be the one, one of the ones that Christ says... Uh, um, depart from me, I never knew you. These are people who profess Christ. We'll continue next time. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful that you are a God of mercy and you've given us this time to load our guns, load our spiritual guns, not to blast away an enemy, but to enlighten those who have accepted the lies. Help us to remember to ask them questions. Help us to recognize that there is no reason, there is no logic, there is no love, there is no compassion. All there is is mystery and sovereignty. We pray that you will help us to remember these things, that we'll file them away, that you will be able to use us to help these people out of darkness. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.